Welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully. This is a podcast to elevate teacher voice. In this program, you will hear teachers sharing their journey into this profession and their ideas for education. I'm kicking it off Teacher Appreciation Week, which starts May 2nd. This is about honest, vulnerable, inspiring storytelling. It's a time and a space for teachers to share their ideas for the future of education. Teachers are beautiful beings who give their heart and soul to their community. They're innovators, they're inspirational, not only to children, but to the people around them. And they deserve to share their voice. So welcome to The Teacher's Story. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully, and today we have Dr. Angela Young with us. And I met uh, Dr. Young on LinkedIn, and she has been such a vibrant voice on LinkedIn, sharing her journey and story and the work that she wants to do in DEI and accessibility. And I'm so excited to have you on today. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much. So for my first question is just tell us a little bit about your background, um, the work that you've been doing and anything like professionally or personally that's kind of led you to this work in DEI and accessibility. Sure. Um, So I've been in the training industry as an educator and a program developer for about 17 years now and counting. And during that time, I've really focused on how to pilot unique ways to train K to 12 students and adult learners. Um, I really thrive on the ability to develop inclusive programming and efficient processes from the ground up. So my passion is engaging clients, uh, you know, students and their families or, you know, service providers through authenticity and really trying to situate myself within their pain points to address their needs as rapidly as possible. Mm, That's wonderful. And kind of just um, around this question, like what are some of maybe within that work challenges that you have found or really great like aha moments or things that have been lighting you up in the work that you do? I think for the most part, it's always the results you see in the students, how Mm. you see them changing from, you know, the beginning of the school year to the end of the school year, the little people that you see the students growing into. Mm. And for me, I'm all about advocacy. So no matter what I'm teaching or who I'm teaching, you know, at the onset of that experience with them, I'm trying to give them language on how to advocate for themselves and how to ensure that they have agency. And then by the end of the school year or, you know, the, the time that we have together, I'm really seeing the students being able to advocate for themselves, to stand up for their needs mm-hmm. or for their beliefs. And that's something that has been uh, completely life-changing as an educator to see to see students being able to do that so that's been a a big piece of why what I do also that's wonderful I really like the advocacy piece because I think that I don't know like younger people in this generation they really do need it and they don't often have the tools of like how to speak up for themselves or how to ask for the help that they need or look at you know the resources they have in a school or community or lack thereof um, and being being an agent for yourself is not only going to help you as a student, but then it's going to help you as an adult, you know, when you are in the workplace that also, you know, more of what you want to get into is like, where do you look for support in the workplace? Um, because that goes well into adulthood and not just out of education. So thank you for that. Um, thinking about the pandemic and how has that been a time for you that maybe let you uh, look at things differently in the work that you do or in your life or how you've wanted to shift things um, in your career? 
The pandemic has been completely life-changing for me, both professionally and personally. So I am deaf and typically I read lips um, as a way to understand what is being said. You know, I prefer that people speak directly facing me mm-hmm. or, you know, I might ask them to repeat themselves. And the pandemic took away every, um, I guess, every tool in my toolkit, mm-hmm. really, because, you know, all of a sudden we're masking you know, mm-hmm. and I can't read lips anymore. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, something has to change here because obviously the way I've operated for, you know, all of my life is now changing. Mm-hmm. So not only did it force me to look at ways, other ways of communication, but it also forced me to look at how we are continuing establishing relationships with the people that we interact with because you know as teachers we're so used to getting those hugs every day in the classroom Mm. or you know the high fives or the fist bumps or being able to really sit down with a student and interact with them you know but Mm -hmm. once we're behind a screen we have to find a way to do this remotely and that also does include you know uh, what are we doing for accessibility for our students? How are we ensuring that all students can be successful? Mm -hmm. So the pandemic, not only from a personal standpoint, but also a professional standpoint, really got me thinking about what are we doing in education along the lines of diversity, equity, Mm -hmm. and inclusion, or what you might know as DEI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, that's such a great um, sharing. Thank you so much, because when you are in a community where you're you're able to hear, right? And you're able to pick up on those cues, like you don't think about how the masks are so detrimental, you know, to certain people. Um, and even just being on Zoom and the communication even on Zoom, it's not the same as in person. And so like having those struggles going through that, but that allowed you to see things differently. And I think like awaken something in you about what do we really need to fix like within education, but just with accessibility all around. And I think, um, you know, when we hear of DEI and, you know, especially in my school, I think ableism is often left out. And I think it's always more of just thinking about like racial background, maybe socioeconomic, um, you know, maybe sometimes religious groups, but I, and I've been talking about this with my students more in my psychology class, like we forget about the communities that um, are really like they're at you know a disadvantage and we don't think about it. And then we don't think about like our own situation in school, like in my own school, like there's definitely not resources there for like all of the students who maybe, you know, don't have the same access as like other students. And I'm like, hmm, we don't ever think about that with DEI, but that's such a huge part. So um, just kind of going off of that and then we'll get more into the work that you want to do. like. Um, how would you promote more of that kind of training or work with accessibility, weaving that into the DEI work? So ever since DEI really started gaining momentum, which happened right around um, George Floyd's death, mm-hmm. is when DEI really started ramping up and picking up, you know, within organizational spheres. But unfortunately, even now, DEI initiatives are mostly housed under the HR umbrella. Mm-hmm. And the argument in DEI is that, you know, we can't just focus on this as a talent acquisition piece, mm-hmm. or, you know, how are we treating our employees? But DEI really needs to be infused across the organization, all, across all policies. And that's why in the work I'm doing, I'm trying to ensure that DEI is kind of its own department that way. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, if you're under HR, you've got to make the decisions you know, that align with how HR, you know, 
is experiencing growth or where they would like to see the company go. And mm -hmm. while that's important, it shouldn't be, you know, the end all be all of what you're doing for DEI in your company. And mm -hmm. when most people historically think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're thinking about race and ethnicity, which is, you know, the, the, the part of DEI that you can see. Mm -hmm. My argument is that we need to switch our focus to the part of DEI that you can't see, which is, you know, LGBTQ um, individuals, gender diverse individuals, the mm -hmm. invisible disability community, because, mm -hmm. you know, some, you know, deafness is an invisible disability. You can't really see that someone is deaf until they, they inform you. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, lupus. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many different things that go into that invisible disability category that, you know, you don't see unless someone tells you. And, where we get, you know, I don't want to say where we get in trouble, but where we experience friction then is when someone assumes that you are 100% able-bodied and that you don't need accommodations and then, mm -hmm. you know, you, but you do need accommodations. So mm -hmm. let's not put accommodations in place just for the people that need it. Let's put accommodations in place for all people. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing, even if you don't have a disability currently, you will have a disability at some point in your life and mm -hmm. it's called aging. <laughs> and as people age, mm -hmm. things happen. Your hearing, mm -hmm. you know, um, you lose your hearing, you lose your sight, everything starts to regress. Mm -hmm. And you might have mobility issues, you know, fine motor, gross motor, all of the above. Um, you might have, you know, bodily function issues. I mean, so all of these things will eventually situate most of the population mm -hmm. into the invisible disability community. And wouldn't it be great if through accessibility and inclusion, all of these components were in place, you know, so that we could care for everyone regardless mm -hmm. of what their need is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially in the education sector where children cannot always advocate for themselves, we shouldn't put them in a position where they feel forced to, we should, mm -hmm put them into a situation where all of these accommodations have been made for anyone who needs them, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not just about, oh, well, are you someone with a documented disability? Well, what does it matter? Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, this is where this advocacy and this agency comes into play, where from a very young age, everyone needs the encouragement and enablement to be able to advocate for themselves. But if they can't advocate for themselves, than to exist in a safe space where mm -hmm. they are being advocated for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And kind of going along the, and I love that you kind of listed all the different types of like, you know, in, you know, invisible disabilities that we don't see. And I was also thinking of like mental health too. I think we're still in a society where there's an opening to talk about mental health, but when you're a professional, you feel like I can't say, I deal with anxiety because I have to be this really strong teacher in front of you or whatever your profession is. And I have to lead. And if I say that I go to therapy and struggle with anxiety, I look like I'm weak. That is still a stigma. And I think with students, that is still a stigma. And just the whole agency part, students still don't know how to say, like, I need to talk to the counselor even, you know, I'm having a hard time. I feel a lot of pressure on me right now. And I don't, you know, I don't know how to talk to maybe my parents about like the pressure they're putting on me, or I don't know how to talk to my teachers if like maybe I need an extension, whatever that may be. And you, you, you're right, the culture needs to be there. And part of like the work you want to do as, you know, like in a director role of DEI, like not having that just be housed in HR, but have it really be 
its own kind of department of like, how do you build that culture, right? Within a school or a company organization so that people do find that there is a safe place for them to advocate, to have agency. Um, one thing that we do in my school, at least that I feel like is somewhat getting there is um, affinity groups. So at least there are these spaces where students and faculty, because they are part of those affinity groups as well, could talk about the things within like, you know, the group that they're in. And like, I'm part of the mental health um, affinity group and there's a space for teachers and students to talk about those things that that's going on. So, I mean, that's like one little kind of step that we're moving in. But if you want to go more into like the work you want to do and how you um, see maybe, I don't know, the strategies of changing that culture within a company or organization or what you're looking to do in the future? I think largely the opportunity to affect accessibility within an organization. So how are we ensuring that all humans are being invited to the table? Because here's the thing about accessibility. What you're subconsciously saying is, here's who is welcome at my table and here's who is not welcome at my table. Mm -hmm. And while that might not be your conscious intention, that's what is being conveyed to people who experience you know, the need for accommodations or who might not be able to interact with your organization or your product or what have you, you know, in the way that they would prefer to do so. Mm -hmm. So being sure that across your company organization from the very beginning, from everything you're building, you know, from the ground up that accessibility isn't your last thought, accessibility mm -hmm. is actually your first thought. Mm -hmm. uh, in this way, you know, if you start with accessibility, good accessibility practices from the ground up, you're saving money, you know, because mm -hmm. you don't have to go backwards mm -hmm. and, you know, fix things or adjust things. You're saving capital and resources because you're getting things started immediately. Mm -hmm. And then also you can become a role model in your industry for accessibility. Um, for example, in the tech industry, one of the companies that is really doing some groundbreaking work with regard to accessibility is Site Improve. Mm. Um, and Site Improve is an organization that I have my eye on because um, they allow organizations to increase client digital experiences and engagement in order to drive enrollment and revenue for their clients, you know, mm. and that's, that's very important. And um, there's actually, a grid report that comes out, it's called the G2 grid report, and it uh, names leaders in enterprise categories with regard to accessibility. So for mm -hmm. example, accessibility, SEO, digital governance, digital analytics, and you know, Site Improve is actually one of the only companies that was named um, a leader in all four of those areas. Mm. So there are there are role models. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're looking to transition from education into tech, mm -hmm. look at the accessibility companies that are, you know, doing this great work. If you are an educational leader, look at what uh, companies like Site Improve are doing, mm -hmm. you know, to increase accessibility for their clients and think about, okay, how would this translate to the educational world? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so that's just, I mean, those are some mm -hmm. ideas. I mean, even as a teacher, you can increase accessibility really easily. So as teachers, we're probably all familiar to some degree with how to 
make sure that ESOL students, English as second language learner students, mm -hmm. you know, are able to access the curriculum that we're giving them. So right. we might use more visuals. We might use simpler text. We might use hand gestures when we're speaking. Mm -hmm. We might ensure that the phrases that we use throughout transitions remain the same so that every time that language learner hears the phrase, okay, friends, five minutes left, you know, they know what that means. Mm -hmm. So these are mm -hmm. all accessibility tools also, because think about it, you're enabling that ESOL student to access the curriculum, that's mm -hmm. accessibility. So as a teacher, you know, um, if you have students that might need accommodations, even if you don't know if they do, you know, make sure that all of your lesson content that you're presenting is high contrast. Make sure you don't have similar colors mm -hmm. that could be, you know, confusing or hard to see. Make sure that if you want your students to take notes, you provide outlines and, you know, you can provide a packet. One half of the packet can be all of your notes with outlines with just blank spaces that they can mm -hmm. fill in keywords. And then the back half of your packet can be more, you know, um, free form note taking. And then you just give it to everybody. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter if they choose to use the, you know, the structured outline or if they cho choose to use the free form outline regardless, everybody's, you know, acquiring the content and learning the information. Mm -hmm. So just thinking through, you know, if I had an English as a second language learner student in my classroom, what would I do? Mm -hmm. If I had students with um, visual IEPs or fine motor IEPs, individualized education plans, what would I be doing for those students? And do it for everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to make it, does this person need this? Mm -hmm. Does this person need that? Because then, you know, a little secret, you're meeting everybody's IEP without mm -hmm. having to really think about it because you've already got these accommodations in place. So when that special ed meeting rolls around, you know, oh, Miss Scully, how are you meeting your students' needs? Oh, well, I already do all of these things. And then I, I also ramped up on these parts to specifically meet Stephen's IEP. Mm -hmm. You know, so as teachers, I mean, there are so many things we can do that, doesn't take a lot of time, right? Because we don't have that. That doesn't take a lot of money because we don't have that. But it's stuff that we're already doing for our ESOL and our special education students. But then it also encompasses the need for accessibility that anyone in our classroom might have. Yeah, I love those examples because, and I don't currently, but when I was teaching in Hawaii, I did have those students. And so the idea of you just offer it to everyone. And then it also gives students choice. So like if they're not, you know, needing those accommodations, but now they have it and they're like, oh, this might be a strategy that I want to use. Um, that can definitely be helpful. And it's not singling anyone out either. So I think the idea of accessibility too is like, you have this, everyone has it. Um, and I know the students or anyone like in the workplace, because I kind of want to see how this would transform into the workplace or transition. Um, but I'm not singling you out. Like these students are getting this this special type of, you know, work or accommodation, and it's not like out there. I love those examples in education in the classroom. And thank you so much for that. How would that do you think? Because I could see how this would be so beneficial in the workplace for adults. So I guess kind of the work that you want to do um, in different companies and organizations, like what would that look like for adults in the workplace with that kind of accessibility? I think we're almost heading there with the fact that many um, leaders and C-suite members are realizing that working remotely is something that could be good mm -hmm. for everyone. 
So working remotely in, in itself could be considered an accommodation. But the great thing about remote work is that, you know, if your team is working remotely, that means they choose when they work and where they work. And I had a great conversation with a leader earlier this week where she said, you know, for my team, I don't mind the hours that they work or where they work. All I mind is that the outcomes are being met. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that translates well to education too. Like, um, for example, in my classroom, I had a few students who needed to wear headphones when they took a test because they needed no sound whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I gave all of my students, um, I asked them all to take out their headphones and, they, and take out their Chromebooks. And I gave them the option of going on YouTube and finding either white noise or a song or focus music or something you would like playing while you're doing this assessment. And this was a, I, I tested it out with a practice assessment that didn't count because I wanted to see if it affected, if it influenced their performance, you know, in a negative way, you know, then maybe I wouldn't do that next time. They actually performed better because they were able to choose what was coming into their ears. Some kids said, you know, Dr. Young, I, I put my headset on and I just didn't turn anything on because I just liked that it muffled the mm-hmm. class noise. I'm like, okay, that's great. Somebody said, hey, you know, um, at home, whenever I do my homework, my mom plays African hip hop. So mm-hmm. I put African hip hop on because that's what that's what I know when African hip hop is playing, I'm working. So mm-hmm. You know, in the workplace, I mean, if you're in an office setting, you know, maybe allowing your employees to, you know, do what they need to do when they have their earbuds in, you know, and it's not a meeting or anything, um, maybe allowing them to ways. So maybe some people prefer to write. Some people might prefer taking notes on the keyboard. Some people might prefer dictation. So, you know, just being aware that there are so many different ways that we as both children and adults prefer to acquire knowledge or to then showcase the knowledge that we do have, you know, that there are many ways Mm -hmm. to do this. Um, So for example, you know, if you're having a company-wide meeting, do you want the meeting to be face-to-face? Do you Mm -hmm. want it to be uh, over the computer where there's accompanying slides or some sort of accompanying audiovisual aspect of that of that meeting, you know, do you want your meeting to be an email? It's, that's that's the joke in the corporate world. Could this meeting have been an email? <laughs> but truly, can it be an email? I, I don't know, you know. But these are all ways mm. to accommodate, you know, the people in your workforce. I love that, and I, I mean, I like seeing that because I think what we can start in the classroom with students. And then how that translates because they're going to be in the workforce, right? And I think giving as much um, choice as possible. Um, And I think we're in this, another thing to come out of the pandemic, I think we're in this uh, moment where uh, workers are, I wouldn't say like challenging, but they're really trying to come back to their employers saying, you know, remote really worked for me or hybrid is a good system and I was more productive. And I can give you better outcomes that way. And so I think there's employees now sticking up for themselves and advocating for themselves and saying like, this actually was a better way to work. And you're seeing a lot of um, companies needing to transition and offer that, you know, offer remote or offer hybrid. Um, And I hope that continues because we can't just go backwards to, well, that was the pandemic we're just going to go back to doing what we're doing because now we're coming out of the pandemic. Like, no, there was a mind shift there. And that mind shift, I think, needs to continue in the workplace and in school. I personally did not like teaching hybrid. I don't, ultimately, I don't think that's the best way. But I think having it as an option 
for when maybe students are really ill or need to be home and they maybe have that option to still come into the classroom. Um, or, you know, we still, there's going to be other things that happen in our world that maybe we do need to be remote for some time period. So I think just taking away what we did in the pandemic and not saying that was for two years, let's go back, but using that as some flexibility. I think flexibility is very key in both school and in the workplace. I think too, you know, we, um, we're realizing that there are a lot of teachers looking to leave the classroom environment. I read a survey that the NEA put out in February and it said as many as 55% of teachers were looking to transition out of the classroom in the next year. And if we allow that to happen, you know, and keep the educational, the overarching educational model in the U.S. the same, that's going to be, you know, completely disruptive and destructive to our educational system, to our students, you know, how are they going to receive education, you know, consistently and regularly. And I think, you know, COVID showed all of us that we can work remote easily, Mm -hmm. you know, just ask any teacher. So any organization that's saying, oh, no, you know, I'm not a fan of remote working. Well, your children did it for two straight years, you know, and they're okay. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, the educational model is really going to need to shift Mm -hmm. to, you know, what learning environment are we advocating for our students? Because not every student thrives when they're sitting in a room with 30 other kids. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody does that. Actually, even you could say that not every student thrives sitting. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how are you enabling people to acquire information and to learn so that it aligns with their personal preferences? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if what the NEA says is true and we are in danger of losing, you know, 55% of teachers, then we really need to now start thinking about what we are going to do to retain those teachers, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think it's, you know, being in school for seven hours a day in a building. I don't think that's going to happen, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so that's something that the educational world really needs to start digging into, you know, Mm -hmm. and again, that's where people who do DEI and accessibility can really help you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, I 100 10% agree with all of that. And that statistic, I'm not surprised by, but it's still startling. And I've been saying this on other episodes and just in teachers and people in my life that this system's going to crash and it's going to be like, you know, you look at the economics with like the crash of the stock market, it's going to be a great depression for education. It's, it's going to be bleak and we need to wake up and, do something before that big crash happens. I fear that I don't want to be doom and gloom, but I fear that the way our system, our government and education works, it's going to take the crash for them to do something, to make some real change. I was just talking on the last episode with um, Sally Palmer, who we both know on LinkedIn, that we have had a factory style system of education for over a hundred years. It has mm-hmm. not changed besides some alternative schools and charter schools here and there. And you know, and there are cyber schools as well. But for the most part, and I'm in an independent school, most public and independent, it hasn't changed. And you're right, we don't need to be in person. Um, students don't need to be in school seven hours straight going through all of these subjects and sitting and learning in one, pretty much one mode all day long. It doesn't work at all. 
I completely agree. And I think that like I, like we've both been saying, you know, if, if something doesn't change, then we're on this really um, damaging trajectory. And that's unfortunate because, you know, teachers even have solutions to this. I mean, ask any one of us that are teachers, we could help you figure this out, yep. you know? So, you know, what can we do to ensure that, you know, the future of education is not, as you said, bleak, which is such a good word to describe it, you know, and that we can actually thrive, you know, and, and start, you know, bouncing back and, and going forward. So touching on what we've been talking about um, with kind of how things are shifting dramatically in the workplace, and I think we'll continue, I think that should also motivate um, schools to change because with the number of teachers leaving, um, but also how the workplace is changing and more work now is about innovation and it's about working in different ways. We can't keep the same model in schools because we're not, we're not giving our students the preparation for like the real world, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and I would love to see the school schedule change and the school day change as far as like, even this idea of hybrid model. Uh, we had this in the peak of the pandemic where we were virtual and then we went to hybrid, but then we had Wednesdays off, like off not going in person or not being virtual, but students were able to work with their teachers so they could maybe access them on Zoom if they want to get extra help. They had some maybe project-based assignments or like, I like the idea of like Wednesday in the middle of the week being a break of the traditional schedule and then like work on a passion project, you know, or get some extra help from a teacher that maybe, you know, or a peer tutor or whatever you need. And so it's not this constant, like you said, seven hours of school, class to class to class. They don't need that. They need to have flexibility. I think you can have some time where students can work from home as well. And I mean, I don't know what parents think about that, but we also can't look at schools of like, this is my childcare and that's it, right? So like we, like you said, we did this for two years so we can figure out another model. Yeah, I mean, one area of concern I really have is, I feel like since I started teaching in 2005 until now, the opinion that people have of teachers has really shifted. I felt like when I started, teachers were held to a higher regard than they're held now. And I feel like that's dangerous because if you're not infusing the importance of respecting your teachers to your children and they're coming in then with this mindset that I don't have to be respectful or I don't mm. have to, to know this or I don't have to learn this, then you know, as teachers, we really don't have any kind of recourse on how to encourage them to perform well academically. So I've noticed this trend and maybe it's just me. I don't know if other people you've talked to have seen it, but I really do feel like the, the um, aura of respect is kind of decreasing. Mm -hmm. And that worries me also. Why has there been this shift that you know, teachers aren't necessarily important anymore, mm. you know, because isn't it true that almost everything we know we learn from, I mean, anyone can be a teacher, right? If you're teaching mm -hmm. someone something, poof, you're a teacher. So everything we've learned has come from a teacher, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and our first teachers were our family, mm -hmm. you know, and the people that surrounded us and, you know, loved us and, and raised us. So why is there this trajectory of shifting respect? I don't know. It's very confusing. And it's, mm -hmm. it's something that, you know, I, I, I can't see a, a correlation between that and, you know, anything specific. So I wonder about it. 
Yeah, I've seen that too as a trend. Um, and I started right around the same time as you as well in 2005. So that's interesting. Um, and I've, you know, I've taught in China and I, I taught in Hawaii and some other places where I think culturally too, it's different. It's not just the times, but it is different culturally. Like I've seen more respect in other communities um, that I've been in, but I think the pandemic actually made it worse. Um, I wouldn't say from my personal experience, but I know many teachers in the public school system and depending on areas of the country, um, they saw that there was more um, attacks against teachers. And then everything that was happening with like CRT at school boards like last summer, um, it, it kind of went the other way. Like people saw, okay, well, now teachers are at home in their pajamas teaching. Like, wh why should we even like pay them? Like, they're not even doing their jobs. Like there was a lot of attacks, I think, against yeah, teachers in the cool. pandemic. So that just made it, I think, decrease even more so that level of respect when really it took much more work, <laughs> much more work than I've ever done in a traditional classroom to teach virtually because there's so much prep. There's more prep than you've ever done before and more research that you have to do if you genuinely care. And most teachers do genuinely care to do it right. So I think it is like, a, it's a shift from the you know pandemic and I don't see it getting better. Um, you know, I also think students as a whole in this generation, and I talked about this before, are bored. They're bored they don't want to work in this factory model anymore. And it's not our decision-making as teachers, but they see us in the trenches with them and they come back at us like, I don't want to learn this way, right? And like, we want to try to be innovative and do different things, but often our hands are tied. And the schedule also, you know, ties our hands because um, there's no time or space to really create um, or give those students those those places to create and play and be innovative and just work on like something you want to do for you and not just feel like you're checking off all of these classes you have to take. So yeah, I think it does always still come back to the teachers feeling like we're getting the brunt of everything when it's like, but we don't actually have a lot of decision-making power. And I kind of want to bridge that from some of the work that you want to do in DEI and accessibility is how do we put the people who are the employees, the, the teachers, the workers, how do we put them into the positions of decision-making roles so that we can start to change the system? Because these are the people who have the ideas and we need to give all of those, I think we need to give all of those people a chance to be in a place to empower them and say, you can make a difference and you're not just stuck in something that's not working. Exactly. I mean, as an administrator, you need to look at what the strengths are of your team. And if you notice that there is someone who has per been pervasively good at doing something, you need to give them an opportunity to run something or to lead something. It's very simple. Hey, Jackie, I saw that you, you know, for the past four years, you've really done a great job with ensuring that all of the reading benchmark scores have been traveling in the upward, you know, in an upward path. Like, this is great. You know, would you love to to try a reading intervention group, you know, where you pull some students and you kind of create like a plan, what would that look like? And mm -hmm. when would you pull them? And, you know, we could get, you know, a, a building sub to come in for an hour a day so you can, you know, you can run that, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, it's very simple, ask them. They want to mm -hmm. be asked. Trust me when I tell you, they want, we want to be asked to help mm -hmm. because we, we didn't become teachers if we didn't want help. Every teacher I know wants to help. Mm -hmm. So, it's very simple. And, you know, coming back to accessibility and, and disability and, and, you know, DEI, 
the people in that community who are experiencing whatever it is that you're trying to understand or, um, you know, make sure that you're attending to in your organization, we want to help. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to do things that increases um, accessibility for deaf people, then you need to make sure that the deaf people in your organization are on that project, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, um, I, I try to do all of my work from within the communities that I situate myself. So queer, neurodiverse, deaf, um, you know, a domestic violence survivor. Um, mm -hmm. So a breast cancer survivor. So everything I do, I'm speaking from my own personal experiences because, you know, I mean, usually we use stay in your lane as like a really negative, mm -hmm. you know, phrase, but I, I stay in my lane because I know where my expertise is, but I also know where it isn't. Mm -hmm. And that's great leadership too. You know, great leaders know what they mm -hmm. can do, but they also seek out the people that are around them that will do what they can't do. So, and if, if there's any leaders listening to this who are saying, well, that's ridiculous. I, I can do, you know, I can do anything. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't, you know, and you need a team like you. And actually, if you, even if you could do it all by yourself, why would you want to? Right. You know, who wants to, who wants to operate by themselves? It's lonely and it's grueling. And, you know, so surround yourself with, with great people. Absolutely. I feel that 100%. Um, when I've seen great leaders with other in schools or other organizations, it's they know how to delegate and they know mm -hmm. how to delegate and they know how to find the people and put them into positions of decision-making roles because they know that ultimately that's better for everyone because the ultimate goal is how do I progress my school? How do I progress my organization? How do I make it better? Whatever that outcome, whatever that strategic plan or goals, how do you hit that? You got to go to the people and not put it all onto your plate or just the other like admin that are on your team and see it for, this is a community of talent. You know, this is a community of diverse backgrounds and voices and they all have something to offer. And how can I find those individuals and say, you are great for this role. I'd like to elevate you into this role. And you know what you do right there? Retention. You keep Exactly. People, Absolutely. People. Yep. And that's what's missing. I know I don't see it as often in schools, but I think it's probably missing in a lot of workplaces. I agree. Yeah. You retain people, not just through money. Money is important too. And teachers are underpaid um, and great benefits, but you retain people when you see something in them and you inspire them. And then you allow them to feel like they have a place in this organization where they can make it grow too. And they're not just kind of stuck in their one little role where they feel defeated and they see where they can make change, but they feel like I can't make change, you know? Right. So uh, th that could be, you know, helpful to just retaining teachers right there is go yeah. and look for your teachers or any other people in the faculty and staff and elevate them in some way. You know, you're not probably putting them all right into an admin role, but some kind of leadership role of a committee or a project that you want to, you know, start at a school. Like you just mentioned that example you mentioned about reading and benchmarks and having a reading retention program is a great example just within a school system. Before we end here, this has been great. Um, any final thoughts or final, um, you know, plugs, if you will, of, of the work you're doing or anything else you want to put out there? I would love to. Um, it's been, you know, such a pleasure being on your podcast and speaking with you about this. I also have a podcast. It's uh, specifically about diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
and it's called Remedy EI, the podcast. And um, on there, I talk a lot about my own lived experiences and how I've been trying to translate um, my lived experiences as well as what the invisible disability and DEI communities need um, to some real actionable work that can, you know, really make some change in the future. So uh, would love to, you know, hear your listeners' thoughts on that also from an education perspective. That would be great. So I would appreciate uh, anybody who's willing to check that out. And you can listen on uh, Apple, Google, Outcast, and a couple other platforms. Great. Thank you. And I can include that in the show notes as well. I can include if you like your own um, like LinkedIn information, if anyone wants to connect with you and your uh, Remy DEI podcast, which I have listened to. And it is great. Everyone check it out. Angela, uh, Dr. Young has great ideas. Um, the work you're doing is so important. And it, it's hard. It is difficult. Um, but we can, you know, I think we can really inspire people. We can find those people that can come into these roles in their companies and in schools and make a difference and make it really, really great. And then retain talent, you know, um, and make everyone feel like they're part of something. So it's so inspirational. And I find your voice to be really inspirational on your podcast, but also within the LinkedIn community. So this has been such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. And if I could say one more thing, teachers that are listening, um, I didn't even know back in February when I started on LinkedIn, I started creating content. I didn't even know if I had anything to say that would be worth other people listening to. Um, Newsflash, you have a story. Because when I post now and I'm getting, you know, 160,000 or 323,000 views on my posts, it really does show me, oh, okay. I, I do have something to say, you know, so please don't ever think for a minute that you are just a teacher, you know, or that no one's going to want to listen to what you have to say. You have a story. And, you know, if you're feeling motivated by anything that you've heard Jackie talk about on her podcast or me talk about today, reach out to either one of us because, you know, we would both love to hear your story, you know, and, and talk about, you know, what your experiences have been like, because there really is a platform for that. And if you've not gotten on LinkedIn and started building a community of, of educators, fellow educators on LinkedIn, there are tons of us on here. So this is your sign. It's time to go build your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that is so on point. Um, I did not think LinkedIn would be that kind of community for me, but I think often, especially within education, teachers feel like they're on their own little island and you can have a robust supportive, positive community on LinkedIn and share your voice, share your posts. And like Angela said, she's, she's amazing on there. I mean, you could get the, all these people viewing you where you've thought at one point that no one's going to listen to me, but they will. And people, what they want is they want authenticity. They want to hear your story. And either one of us would love to connect with anyone who is listening. So feel free to reach out. I'll leave all of our information and Angela's uh, information in the show notes. So thank you again uh, for being on the teacher story. It's been wonderful uh, interviewing with you today and learning more about your work. And it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This has been incredible. I'm so uh, honored to be a guest. All right. Have a great day. And, and maybe in the future, we'll be able to meet in person. That would be so much fun. That would be amazing. I would love that. We'll do a little, a little hometown reunion. Yes, that's right. All right. Really quick before we go. Um, Angela and I are from the same hometown and we discovered that when we connected on LinkedIn. So that is a fun fact. <laughs> All right. Bye. Have a good day. You too.